You're listening to the Prison Poetry Workshop Podcast. I'm Ren Smith. Here we present readings, commentary, recordings, and stories about the little-known and even less understood literary tradition of prison poetry. Today, Dwayne Betts. He's an award-winning poet and a student at Yale Law School. But he grew up in the D.C. metro area and was sentenced to nine years in adult prison at 16 back in the late 1990s. His crime was carjacking, and it could have been worse. While he got nine years, he could have faced life in prison for carjacking. When I think about my story, the thing I think about most in sort of the early stages is that the longest I've been away from home was, was seven days. And suddenly, you know, I'm facing life in prison. So I plead guilty to carjacking, and I get sentenced to nine years and um, started Southampton Correctional Center. It's a familiar story. A young black man raised by a single mother ends up in prison. Betts never thought it would be his own, and in a way, it wasn't. In court, Betts refused to blame his actions on faulty parenting or to suggest he would have turned out differently had his father been around. And so I felt like I was intelligent enough and I was smart enough as a kid to know better than to carjack somebody. And I wasn't willing to throw my mom under the bus at that moment, which is is wild (laughs) to me now because I was facing life. In his book, A Question of Freedom, a memoir of learning, survival, and coming of age in prison, Dwayne looks back on how his whole life changed because of an ill-conceived crime that took 30 minutes. In his book, he brings us with him as a squad car ferries him toward his new jumpsuit-clad life, and the enormity of it all weighs on him. Here's Dwayne. 16 years hadn't even done a good job of my voice. It cracked in my head as I tried to explain away the police car driving my 126 pounds to the Fairfax County Jail. Everything near enough for me to touch gleamed with the color of violence. The black of the deputies holstered guns, the broken leather of the seat I sat on, and the silver of the cuffs that held my hands before me in prayer. When I closed my eyes, I, th- I thought about the way the gun felt in my palm. I tried to remember what caliber pistol was, but couldn't. It was automatic and weighed nothing in my palm, and I couldn't figure how something that weighed nothing could have me slumped in the back of a car driving me away from my life. My wrist almost slipped through cuffs that held me captive as jailhouse danger swirled red in my head. Betts was kind of an outlaw nerd, a person whose impression of prison life came from books and pop culture. I want to tell you that I could talk tough, that I was going over everywhere I knew to say back up off me, but I wasn't. There were titles of movies and books on my mind. Shawshank Redemption, American Me, Blood In, Blood Out, makes me want to haul a racehorse, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Every movie or book I ever read about prison bled with violence, and I knew the list I was making in my head could go on forever. Stories of robbery, rape, murder, discrimination, and what it means to not be able to go home. But Betts explains that the optics of prison life were different from anything he'd imagined. That ain't this story. This is about silence and how in an eight-year period I met over a dozen people named Juvenile or Younger or Shorty all nicknames to tell the world that they were in prison as young boys, as children. We wore the names like badges of honor, because in a way, for some of us, it was all we had to guard us against the fear. And we were guilty, 
and I was just like everyone else. I thought about the edge of a knife. When Dwayne was sentenced, his judge looked at him and said something that still bothers him to this day. I am under no illusion that sending you to prison will help you. But you could get something out of it if you want. That still irks Dwayne. For real, I think that was just the chip that I put on my shoulder and I've carried my entire life. And for two reasons. One, because if it won't help me, how will it help society? You're giving me nine years. I'm going to be 25 years old when I come home. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense at all. And yeah, I got something out of it. But the thing is, I, I took it, though. Though getting something out of his time wasn't something he did on his own. And one of the ways I survived without trying to be the tough guy is that people enforced the, the worth in being an intelligent dude. So when I would be sitting down in the block in Sussex reading a book on the floor, you know, nobody clowned me. You know, when I would be studying Spanish at Augusta three, four hours a day, running around on the soccer field speaking Spanish, um, like nobody clowned me. You know, when I was working in the law library and I was helping people with their cases, people showed up and clowned me then. In other words, Betts wasn't aided by prison as much as by prisoners. Betts and other prisoner poets would pass the time spitting rhymes and talking politics. Sometimes it'd be, you know, 10 degrees outside in torrential snow, and it's just five people on a way pile, and it's my my team, you know, the the, the, the three people that I used to exercise with, and this, this, you know, this big husky white guy that would be outside with shorts on and all kinds of weather. And I remember moments like that, and I know moments like that drove me. But it's important to stress that wasn't everyone's experience. Prison could be harsh. Some people got stomped out. Some people got mistreated and all of that. So I'm not trying to deny the existence of that. But what I'm trying to do is say, if this is going out to the world, the thing that people don't think about in prison is the way in which men nurture men and, and, and the way in which, yeah, I was raised in prison. And so, if, you know, if it was like the first person, you know, it's like outside of my mom, like the first real person that believed that I'll be where I am in the day, it was, it was the men who were around me. One of the hardest moments of Dwayne's nine years in prison was his time at Red Onion State Penitentiary. Opened in 1998, Red Onion was a prison built to house the worst of the worst. It was a place where prisoners were constantly monitored and spent 23 hours a day in their cells. Guards could fit allegedly misbehaving inmates with shock devices or strapped them to a table with five-point restraints. As Dwayne rode toward his destination, the prisoners around him talked about what they were in store for. One of the more experienced prisoners said he knew all about Red Onion. And he was like, you know, it's only rednecks up on this mountain, you know. Then one of the guys had been there before, and he was telling stories about how, you know, somebody had bucked on the strip search. Because when you get there, they strip you, and they strip you, and it's like 15 guards watching you in a room, you know, get naked. So they went in there, and they beat them down, and they stripped them themselves, and then they carried them to the hole naked across the yard. When Dwayne arrived at the prison, he says the place didn't disappoint. When we got off the bus, they had a shackled and cuffed, and um, had a dog out there, you know. It was, a, and it was a show, you know, it was just this huge show to say we in charge. And adding to his nightmare was the fact that he didn't belong there. Because I was 16, 17, you know, 127, 130 pounds. And I was just thinking, you, you kind of really don't need all of this stuff, you know. And it was supposed to be a prison for the worst of the worst. And in my head, I kept thinking, why am I here? You know, this has to be some kind of accounting error. This is the kind of thing that gets somebody, you know, 
Somebody should get fired behind this. The man Dwayne held responsible was a prison bureaucrat who seemed to know close to nothing about him. I realized that the, the most dangerous people in the system weren't always the inmates. Sometimes the most dangerous people were the people who were responsible for classification. Those were the people who were most dangerous, and those were the people who, you know, advocates never talk about. You know, it was a, but it was somebody in the class office of classifications that sent me to Red Onion. You know, it was a counselor who was probably less educated than I was then, who, you know, did this whole report and said, yeah, he should be sent to Red Onion. And it was a whole absurdity to the, to the whole process. Dwayne says prison officials eventually realized their mistake, but not before he saw just how grim life could be at the Onion. And I know, I know one person that lost an eye because they would shoot guns all the damn time and the pellets would fly around and a pellet hit somebody in the eye, the person lost the eye. But what I remember most about it is just being locked down like all the time, <laughs> either for fights or just because they didn't let us out often. One grave. There's only one grave near Red Onion. And Kevin swears he saw a crow, a single black crow dig one hole there. He says nothing else matters if you live a spit away from a graveyard and you know you can only touch that dirt if you die. At least two people died in the echoes of these walls. But if you wanted to count the maim, you'd need a list far longer than the life is bid. Yes, you could list those numbers as if they meant something to a man rumbling with the way his breath stalls after prison mash and a failed GED. There's a graveyard outside the walls that folks call Red Onion. A man buried there listens to the moans that erupt, wrestles with dust to be the last to see the slanted eyes of Abdullah alone in a cell, kneeling before his bunk. When a guard approaches, flashlight in hand and stares at the body in prayer. Body grown huge on the wall, back so straight, it's a headstone and the whole prison is a grave. Betts isn't making anything up. There is a cemetery there where locals gather every year in tribute to those who came before them. The music wafts over the prison's walls. At 32, Betts is a family man and writer now, enrolled at Yale Law, but he still carries his experience. And this is why I think people who have been in prison have to be a part of this conversation about reform because, you know, it's a, it's a particular kind of history that I think um, I've come to carry with me because I got locked up. And, and partly because I, you know, I thought I wouldn't get locked up and I, I didn't expect to get locked up. And I thought I was better than the men who were in prison because I thought I wouldn't be in prison. I thought somehow my education shielded me, right? When I'm getting locked up, I found out that I wasn't the most brilliant person, period. You know, I knew some people who were far more intelligent than I was. People who did things like with their mind from inside a cell that I, I just didn't think was possible. As someone who's found success, he could be used as an example of the system working. But Dwayne didn't emerge unscathed. That prison changes you in so many ways and it can make you brutal and it can make you hard and it can scar you. And so you got a system that you know is built like that and then you had all of these other things around the system that make it even worse and then you expect somebody to come out whole. And it's just, it ain't even that it's unrealistic. You know, it's immoral and, and, and it's inhumane the way we treat men in prison. And maybe one of the reasons why I emphasize the sort of positive stories that I have and those moments that I have is because, you know, I got to hold on to those to balance out the darkness because it is, there is some darkness, you know.
I'm Ren Smith. We'll be back next week with more prison poetry. To find out how you can lend your voice to our poetry archive, go to prisonpoetryworkshop.org.